Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. On Tuesday this past week, a New York City couple was arrested on charges that they laundered some $4.5 billion that was stolen in a breach of a cryptocurrency exchange. In 2016, almost 120,000 Bitcoin was stolen from crypto exchange Bitfinex. Federal officials wanted to make clear that despite the security of crypto, it is still highly traceable and criminals should beware. This was the largest financial seizure ever by federal officials. And for more on this, we'll speak to Justin Rorlick, reporter at The Daily Beast. The unanswered million-dollar question is, what were they doing with this? How did they get it? They're accused of laundering the money. But a lot of people are asking why they would have been given all this Bitcoin to launder. They weren't professional money launderers, as far as anyone knows. So, like you said, this goes back to 2016 when the Bitfinex exchange in Hong Kong was hacked. At the time, the, the Bitcoins were worth $77 million. So they appreciated in value by about 5,000% by the time Morgan and, and Liechtenstein were arrested. Uh, the Fed's got about $3.6 billion of it back. And it's just unclear who stole it or how Morgan and Liechtenstein came into possession of it at this point. I love that part of the story, The how much the Bitcoin had appreciated. So it was just about 120,000 Bitcoin. It was 119,754 Bitcoin that they were able to do. And it just appreciated so much with the volatility of how things go. So an interesting part of that. Let's talk about how they were laundering the money because there were some sophisticated stuff behind it, transferring between wallets, things like that. So how did they do that part of it, at least? They did their best to obfuscate the true source of the funds and any real names behind it. A lot of people think cryptocurrency like Bitcoin is anonymous and, and untraceable. And to a certain degree, it is in theory. But even if you have your cryptocurrency in a digital wallet under someone else's name, real life always intersects somewhere in an investigation. So in this case, the Bitcoin was in a digital wallet that investigators kept an eye on. And the digital wallets, they identified the wallet that it went into not too long after the, uh, the hack, but they just didn't know who was controlling it. But they were able to trace the outflow from that wallet to various crypto exchanges where the two of them had accounts under different names. But they eventually located a couple of accounts that were in their real names, and they were able to connect the dots. Owning Bitcoin doesn't mean anything if you can't spend it. And the easiest way to do that is to turn into cash, which generally involves transferring it into a bank account. Law enforcement can also trace IP addresses, and Liechtenstein was allegedly saving incriminating information to his iCloud account, or it was getting backed up to his iCloud yeah. account. So even if you delete whatever's on your phone, it's still on Apple servers, which the feds can get access to. And they further were able to identify transactions that the two of them had with Uber, Walmart, Hotels.com, and I believe PlayStation. So... There are always digital breadcrumbs that, that right. investigators can pick up. And that was an interesting part of it, too, because they didn't seem like they were spending a lot of the money, big, lavish lifestyle or anything. They spent a lot of it on gold. They bought some NFTs. You mentioned Walmart. They were getting some gift cards and things like that. Nothing really flashy or anything like that. 
And to the point that you were talking about earlier about how some of this is traceable, that was one of the things that the district attorney in this case really wanted to make clear. You know, obviously, law enforcement has a lot of resources at their disposal, but that notion that Bitcoin and cryptocurrency is untraceable, all that, they wanted to dispel that right away. They said, if you're doing bad stuff, you're a criminal thinking you're going to be hiding behind the anonymity of cryptocurrency, you're wrong. And and this is a perfect case for it. Yeah, it's very, very difficult to remain anonymous in today's world, even with things like cryptocurrency that are that are kind of marketed as anonymous messaging apps like like uh whatsapp uh you know which are end-to-end encrypted well you know if you're using an iphone a lot of times people don't turn off the automatic backup capability so those whatsapp messages maybe are getting deleted from your phone or, or not being able to be intercepted in transit but you know i've seen a multitude of cases where fbi agents were able to access that information off of somebody's iCloud account or something of that nature, something equivalent. It's going to be really Um, interesting, uh, you mentioned earlier too, to see what evidence does come out in the trial, who else can get nailed on being part of this thing. You know, investigators think that it's not just them two, right? It's There's a lot of people involved in this possible scheme. So the evidence to come out will be interesting. Uh, They were in court already. They both got bailed out by their parents. Uh, (laughs) An interesting thing. Um, But I did want to talk about a couple of more interesting things around it. Uh, Morgan, uh, for herself, she she seems to be quite an interesting character. She was a contributor to Forbes. You see on her bylines, former contributor. They have a distinction. She was a rapper. Just a lot of funny stuff kind of surrounding that part of it. Yeah, she uh, was pretty active online. She was definitely... uh, bit of a young woman around town in certain circles. She was a Forbes contributor. Forbes was quick to tell us that she's no longer uh, part of the network and that she wasn't ever a Forbes employee. But she was a contributor there up till September 2021. One of her articles that she contributed advised burnt out executives to try rapping uh, (laughs) in order to recharge their batteries. Right. Another one, which it seems sort of prophetic, uh, in hindsight, uh, was headlined, experts share tips to protect your business from cyber criminals. Right when they're engaging in a bunch of that nefarious activities. And, and you, uh, you know, an article in your article, you posted a video to a YouTube of one of her songs. You know, a lot of work, let's say, needs to be done to up that rap game. But <laughs> just a couple of crazy kids. I, I think uh, Liechtenstein, his, his, uh, his, his, his like dual citizenship with Russia, things like that. It's just a, a peculiar couple that got involved in all this and and we don't know you know what the all the big motivations behind it and as you mentioned how they were being funneled all this cryptocurrency we we really don't know and i i expect that some of these questions maybe not all but some of these questions will be answered in court Liechtenstein does have dual citizenship he grew up uh in illinois i think in the chicago area morgan is from a small town in northern california her family is apparently fairly active in local politics or in local sort of administration of this small town. And a cousin of hers told me that she was very shy as a child and then moved to New York and just had this sort of metamorphosis into uh, this other person. Nobody expected uh, this from her, according to uh, her family. And people that knew her said the same. I spoke with the 
musician in Pennsylvania who produced her music. He said he had never had any idea that, you know, anything like this was going on. And he also echoed the sentiment that they weren't spending wildly and really flaunting their money. And, you know, they, they got just under $3 million out in cash between 2017 and 2021. So a little bit under a million bucks a year. And that's a lot of money, but it's a lot less than four and a half billion. This was the largest seizure of cryptocurrency by the federal officials and the largest financial seizure ever. Justin Rorlick, reported the Daily Beast. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks a lot for having me. Finally for this week, we'll talk a little bit about the condiment business. It's hyper-competitive. And one of the major players in the spice game, McCormick, has been making acquisitions to take over the world of hot sauce. They recently bought Frank's Red Hot and Cholula in deals worth millions of dollars each. The pandemic proved to be beneficial for McCormick as many people stayed in and cooked more at home, but they were not immune to supply chain issues that affected the industry. For more on McCormick's fight for hot sauce supremacy, we'll speak to Austin Carr, features writer at Bloomberg Businessweek. McCormick, known for all its seasonings and spices and, and those red caps that you see in your, your grandparents' pantry, but in recent years, they've really going after the sauce market. And yeah, French's, they also own Stubbs Barbecue, they own Old Bay. And they also develop a lot of products for other companies. If you've ever had uh, Cool Ranch Doritos yeah. or Bud Light Lime, they were the, the company behind that that flavor t- development. But with Hot Sauce specifically and their purchase of, of Frank's Red Hot and Cholula Hot Sauce, that's really going after the, the big, huge growth in the global uh, hot sauce market. In the last six or seven years, we've seen global hot sauce sales rise about 54% to about $5 billion uh, around the planet. Uh, in the U.S. specifically, it's actually the, the the hot sauce market is roughly on par as of the as of last year with ketchup, which is pretty shocking. One would think Heinz ketchup, those sort of major sales are bigger than hot sauce, but hot sauce is a huge growth industry right now, and that explains why McCormick's really going deep on this this love for for low calorie heat that that's really taken off, especially among uh, millennial consumers. Yeah, and as you mentioned in the in the article, right? I mean, this is uh, all the very hyper competitive business, just the sauce market in general. And uh, I just like the wording, right? To become big hot sauce, you need to fight big ketchup first, you know, referring to Heinz just because they have such a a huge uh, control over the market with ketchup specifically. But uh, let's talk about uh, these acquisitions that they made because they're very interesting. I want to throw the dollar amounts out there. They first started off with Frank's Red Hot and French's Mustard. That was kind of a combo deal. And then after that, they went after Cholula. So let's start start with Frank's uh, Red Hot. Then let's get into Cholula. Yeah, the the deal with uh, French's and and Frank's, that was actually for $4.2 billion. So in in the food world, those are gigantic prices. You might hear about that, that sort of investment when it comes to the tech world. And so when, when I when I talked about these purchases with analysts, they, they really compare these things to the equivalent of, you know, when Facebook bought Instagram. It's, it's sort of the, that level of scale that we're talking in terms of the risk, the bet that they're making on these brands. Then fast forward to November 2020, they decided to go after Cholula Hot Sauce. For, and they, they spent about $800 million. And according to our sources, they outbid Heinz for that. Uh, Heinz, of course, you might not realize it, that they're known for ketchup uh, and a ton of, you know, the Heinz sort of 57 brand. But they also own Grey Poupon, A1, Miracle Whip, if you like uh, Lee and Perrin's Worcestershire sauce. 
you know, they're sort of this arsenal portfolio player in the sauce market, and we're interested in hot sauce just as much as McCormick, but the McCormick put up more money, they bought Cholula, and now they control about a third of the U.S. hot sauce market yeah. between Franks, which is number one, and Cholula, which is now number two ahead of Tabasco. It's just nuts, really. And, you know, the, the people that were at McCormick's that were trying to get this deal going, they said, hey, you know, we want to go big. We want to do this. They got approval for everybody. They said, go for it. And what was the deal? It was $800 million was the bid that they put down? $800 million uh, cash cash offer. So this was really a, a deal that was designed to stop a bidding war from happening. In other words, you don't want Heinz counteroffering, you know, and so by, by put, throwing out this big offer, you're not going to see another one countering at a billion or two billion. You know, Cholula sells about $100 million of hot sauce a year. So already the multiple there is pretty big, at least in the food world. Um, so this was really a big deal. And since then, they have seen a lot of growth. McCormick has huge distribution channels with restaurants around the country, uh, with retailers like Walmart and Amazon. And so for them to sort of go from take this Cholula, which is was owned by a private equity firm and you know wasn't a portfolio play beforehand, and now throw it into all these restaurants, whether that's in bottles or in what are called sachets. Those are those little squeeze packs you see when you tear them open and pour it on your, your, your chicken wings or fries. And uh, you're going to see that a lot more in the coming years, especially in grocery stores. That's why I love these stories, right? You kind of uh, uh, grow to love certain brands and then, yeah, you start seeing it in certain restaurants and you're seeing it everywhere and you kind of don't know the history behind it. And, and in some cases, who makes uh, or who owns these properties, right? Because for Cholula specifically, McCormick's doesn't put any of their branding on it, which is, I mean, it's probably smart on their side, right? They just want to keep it in the minds of the consumers. This has always been Cholula. It comes from Mexico, all this stuff. So they don't even put their branding on there. That's correct. And, and, and that's actually, a, it's a pretty smart branding opportunity. I mean, when you think about it, you go to the grocery store, you look at that huge shelf of condiments and sauces uh, and dressings, and you're really choosing not just the taste, but also sort of the memory of that brand. The, the sort of dispensing mechanism is very important. How the bottle looks, the cap. That's why with, with Cholula, a lot of people know it as much for the flavor of that sort of spicy sauce uh, that sort of goes with anything flavor, but they also know it for that distinctive wooden cap, yep. the, the sort of slender glass bottle. And if you look at a lot of the other big companies, you know, we think of Hellman's Mayo, you know that blue and white jar, but you might not know it's owned by Unilever. You know, Sir Kensington, which is sort of fancy mayo and ketchup, also owned by Unilever. And with, you know, uh, you could think of Hunt's Ketchup, Golden's Mustard, Wishbone Dressing for Ranch. Those are all owned by ConAgra, another big food giant. So a lot of these companies out there, they realize the benefit of making these products almost seem like independent, family-run, bespoke brands when there are actually these sort of giant food conglomerates <laughs> right. that are sort of partnering up. So when you go to a ski resort or a, a buffet line, you see their brands all together at the end of the uh, the food aisle rather than Kraft or Unilever or McCormick or ConAgra. They're all going after each other for those mix of flavors that they want consumers to lust after. Sure. And, and as you mentioned earlier, right, McCormick's had its hand in making, developing other things, Bud Light Lime and Cool Ranch Doritos. What am I favorite ones too. I had Absolutely. no 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 clue they had a hand in that. I did want to talk about the pandemic, supply chains and COVID, all that, because that's an interesting thing too. They were seeing a lot of increase in sales at US stores. Obviously people were cooking at home, needed to stock up their pantries. They did have all these deals with restaurants and some of that dried up, but the sales for grocery stores was increasing so much. And then they ran into the supply chain issues for a lot of their stuff. Turmeric, which they need for the mustard, just a ton of different things on the uh, different angles on this front. So tell us about that. It was 
was a really fascinating thing. I mean, I think at the beginning of the pandemic, we're winding the clock. I know it's, it's been so many years at this point, but back to that February, March period when no one quite knew how big of a threat the COVID-19 situation would be. And for McCormick, they're seeing restaurants close. They're seeing factories close. And, and this could be a really disruptive force in their industry. But then the opposite happened. All of a sudden, as you noted, sales of turmeric, which a lot of people use for, for health reasons or because it's what gives the yellow color to, to spicy yellow mustard and French's broth because people are cooking soup at home, baked goods like vanilla, all these things taking off. So at, at this real whiplash moment for McCormick where they have to keep up with the demand at the same time as all these factories are closing, it was a real crazy few months uh, going on to a year and specifically with turmeric. The U.S. almost ran out of mustard for a time. Uh, back in the, sort of the, the grilling season over the summer, they were running low on their reserves for some of the ingredients like turmeric that goes into French's, partly because ocean freight, all those ocean freighters were either not running or closed down or over capacity. So they actually had to rush an emergency air cargo shipment of turmeric, and it landed inadvertently in Baltimore instead of at a French's factory in Missouri. So they had to hire all these truckers overnight to drive it a thousand miles to the French's factory in time for a production run. Otherwise, uh, who knows, we might not have mustard on our (laughs) our hot dog, which sounds small, but for a lot of people, these are comfort foods. And and that was a big deal during the pandemic, especially if you're your parents with kids at home and you got to keep them entertained with food. Yeah. I I mean, that sucks for, you know, McCormick's the parent company at this point for all of this. It sucks for them to have to go through that. But man, I kind of love hearing that, uh, you know, the scramble, right? For consumers, we don't really know what's going on. You might hear there's a shortage of this or that, but this was the scramble to get people the products that they know and love and want. So what's next for McCormick's, at least with uh, this growth potential into hot sauces and other sauces and all these acquisitions they're looking for? What's next for them? You know, I think what's next is now that they have this massive buildup of brands that are all owned by the same company, but seemingly run independently, at least when it comes to grocery sales, you're going to see a lot more mashups. You know, um, Heinz, for example, they're (laughs) they're doing a lot of mashup products, and it's not just ketchup anymore, but they mix it with, you know, all types of, uh, I think they have ketchup, so, uh, you know, Heinz ketchup, mayo, they have mayo chop, honey racha, tar chop, cranch, so it sort of blends of ketchup and ranch dressing and uh, sriracha and, and, and so forth. <laughs> Buffer and ranch you're gonna see, was one of <laughs> <laughs> Buffer ranch, another yeah. one, a part of what Heinz calls their innovation agenda. And so uh, what you might see in the, the coming years are perhaps some mashups between Cholula and French's. So you have a sort of spicier mustard or, you know, Old, Old Bay, uh, which is that popular Baltimore seafood seasoning that's mixed with hot sauce these days, very popular. And so maybe there's going to be more of that. And so the question is, how far do you take that before it sort of ruins some of the brand cachet? Do you want Cholula showing up on Taco Bell menus at McDonald's and so forth? On the other hand, I think a lot of people might like that stuff because, you know, everyone's hungry and, and, and these types of products, they can really go on anything. Austin Carr, features writer at Bloomberg Businessweek. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. And if your listeners have a chance, I know one product that McCormick was really proud of in terms of a mashup with French's flavored craft beer and French's flavored ice cream. And they're, they're convinced it's a big flavor out there. So uh, go try it if you're curious. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much, Austin. Thank you. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.